Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, and on this episode of Jill on Money, we're going to find the key to living well in a high-tech world. The answer may surprise you. You have all these things on your phone. They're all clamoring for your attention. You have some explanation for each. Here's the reason why I downloaded that, or here's what I could do with this. But the overall negative cost of having your attention constantly being pulled at, constantly being manipulated, can far outweigh the sum of all those little benefits they bring you. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. I am Jill Schlesinger, and I have such a great treat today because I've been a fangirl of this guest for a while. His name is Cal Newport. I kind of fell in love with him when he wrote a book called Deep Work. His newest book is called Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. When we are through with this interview, I want you to reassess how you are using social media and all of your communication tools. It will blow your mind. So here's our interview with Cal Newport. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, this is so exciting for me. I'm a little bit of a fangirl. Cal Newport, live in the studio. Welcome to the program. Of course. Thanks for having me. So we start the show with a very specific question, and that is what is the best financial or career decision you've ever made? Oh, that's interesting. Well, probably the best career decision was all the way back as an undergrad, computer science major, and was trying to figure out, do I want to go into industry? So I had a job offer from Microsoft, so stock and good salary, or do I want to go to grad school? Mm. Very little salary, no stock options. But the idea I had was, if I go to grad school, I will have enough flexibility that I can keep writing books Ah. while continuing to do my computer science education. That's interesting, because there was also a certain amount of, you could sort of have a nice steady stream of income if you kind of made it through and got on a tenure track, but also indulge your creative side and be really have have excitement around that and and yeah. find your passion. That's awesome. Yeah, it worked out well. And also it gives you this balance. So if let's say the academic life is grinding you down, you can take some refuge in the writing. And then if you go through a stage when the writing's grinding you down, you can take some refuge in the academic and I could bounce back and forth and sort of self-modulate it. That's great. <laughs> it worked. I first became familiar with you when you wrote a book called Deep Work and it kind of blew my mind. So can you just outline a little bit of the thesis of Deep Work and then maybe we can talk about how that may have led to your current new book, Digital Minimalism? Well, they're definitely connected. So Deep Work in Subsets was talking about some of the unexpected consequences of technology in the workplace. And the argument it was making is that we are undervaluing focus. So we're undervaluing what you get out sustained concentration. And we were overvaluing convenience of, let's say, flexible communication or accessibility. And so the argument was, if you're an individual or organization that cultivates the ability to focus intensely during work, you would have this huge competitive advantage because almost no one else was doing it. When you started writing that, what year was that about? Probably 2014 is when I started to get serious in the research for that. So already we had the iPhone out for seven years. We have lots of different interruptions. But the focus part of that, we've always been interrupted by different things in our lives. I mean, email or the phone way back when. Yep. So what is it that you prescribe in deep work that you have found has has really yielded great upside for people who need to focus? Well, even the vocabulary was a big deal for a lot of people. 
the shallow work, which is the emails and the meetings and the putting together the PowerPoint slides, is different than the deep work, which is the sustained concentration. And that when you make the claim that it's the deep work that actually moves the needle, that's what actually is going to push you ahead in your career or going to raise the profit of the company, while the shallow work is just what keeps the lights on. It's the logistical work that keeps things going. And noting that those are two different things. So it's not just enough to say, I'm busy or that I, I work really hard, I was in the office all day, that you actually have to start thinking what type of work I'm doing. Just adding those terms to the efforts that people did in the office, I think really helped people rethink, okay, what am I actually doing here? Mm. Frenzy is not enough. You know, The actual type of activity matters and focus is, is producing the value. And what's interesting, I just I interviewed Daniel Pink, who wrote a book called When, and he talks about doing deep work at specific periods in the day, which may be different for every individual. Did you find that also? It is different, but what they share in common is a commitment to having actual systems for how they schedule it and rituals surrounding the actual deep work because it's actually really difficult. It's, it's a big ask of the human brain to say, I want to give sustained attention, especially to something that's abstract or symbolic. Like this is this is a big ask. It's not something that you're going to feel like you're in the mood to do. Uh, it's not something that you easily slip into. So serious deep workers have these scheduling philosophies. This is when I do my deep work. Could be different between what you do or I do. Right. But it's clear that they have these rituals that surround it. Okay, how do I coerce my brain into actually entering this mode of sustained concentration on something abstract. So that is really common. And what do you do to drown out everything else? So you don't put your email on, you turn off your phone. What else? Yeah, well, it's it's key in the definition of deep work that any distraction means it's no longer deep work. So even the quick glances only every 15 minutes still doesn't count. If you're looking at an inbox at all, if you're glancing at a phone at all, uh, it doesn't count. So that's the hard and fast rule we have for deep work is that it has to have zero distractions. Your attention needs to be on the one thing and only that one thing to get into your sustained concentration. Because we have a lot of research that shows what kills you in concentration uh, is not multitasking. It's the context switching. So even if you just context switch for a minute to look at an inbox, you're going to pay a cognitive price for a long time after that. And so we got the message maybe around 2010 or so that pure multitasking doesn't work. So if I'm on the phone and answering email while trying to write something difficult, I'm not doing any of them well. The subtle issue, though, is people now think they're single tasking because they only have, let's say, Microsoft Word open. For the most part, they're only working on that one hard thing, but they're doing these quick checks every 10 or 15 minutes. Right. So if I check my phone yeah. while I'm writing my manuscript, yeah. I am really losing ground in that endeavor of yeah. deep work. After you put the phone away, you continue to lose ground. And How so, long? Well, at least 10 to 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah. And most, I would say most knowledge workers go less than 10 to 15 minutes in between quick checks. And so they think they're single tasking because literally speaking, they're not doing these things at the same time, except for in those quick moments that they're checking. Mm. But the attention residue cost, which is the term that comes out of the psychology literature, the attention residue, when you come back to the primary task, lasts for a while, it reduces your cognitive output. And so that's why deep workers are so adamant that there can't be a single glance. And if you glance, the whole session no longer counts as deep work. What? Yeah. The whole thing? The whole thing. Not even like that first half hour where you blew it? No. If you've glanced Damn in the last it. half hour, it doesn't count. Okay. So... <laughs> Let's use me as an example. Why not? I wake up very early. So I have to check my email because I'm in news, right? Yeah. So I have to make sure nobody needs me to come on set or do anything. I do that very quickly. And then should I put an auto reply on my email at that point and basically say, I will not be checking email for the next two hours? Or, some, or develop a, a, a ritual that the people who need to reach you know. 
I mean, something that's very common is you have some sort of emergency procedure. So, mm-hmm. okay, here's my phone. Here's my phone number. The people you work with know if there's something breaking, you could call this phone right. or, or send a text message. Right. Otherwise, this is my writing time, uh, and then I'll be back on it at, at whatever. Right? Expectations are set. And people adjust pretty clearly. It turns out in the workplace that uh, predictability is more important than accessibility, and we often get that wrong. What people need to know is I know how and when I can reach you and how that system works is more important than actually having 24 access to you. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, if there's some emergency, if someone has your number, they'll call you. Yeah. Right? You, you put a little bit of friction in, you're surprised by how, how rarely that actually happens. There are some people who have said to me, but my boss really expects me to check in during vacation. How do I get out of that trap? Right. But I mean, a lot of that is often the predictability versus accessibility okay. dynamic. If it's unclear when I can reach you and when I can't, then I just need to be able to reach you, right? Because I can't deal with this idea that I might need you and I have no idea how to get in touch with you. And so let's just default to answer my emails. Yeah. But if it's clear, okay, here's how it works. I am definitely reachable. There's certain periods when I'm not, when I'm doing this type of work. When I'm on vacation, this is my point of contact. These are the rules of engagement for getting back in touch with me. That type of clarity almost always satisfies do you think that um, the autoresponder actually works or doesn't work? Uh, I think it could be useful um, because it does give information about accessibility. I think in general, what I call communication rules are useful, which is having clarity. Mm. So, for example, I don't have an autoresponder as an author, but I have a pretty clear set of communication rules on my website. Here's four different addresses. They each have different purposes. So use this address for this that address for this. Here are the expectations about whether or not you should expect to hear from me or whether or not I'll read it. And so it's clarity. Mm-hmm. And you would worry, and a lot of writers, for example, what might worry, well, that's going to upset my readers. But they don't seem that upset. Actually, what's more upsetting the readers is if you don't have that clarity. Say, so, I don't know, I see an email address. And so I and had, didn't an, ex- respond I had an expectation, an implicit expectation that you were going to respond that mm-hmm. you did it. If you instead say, here's my address, I love to get XYZ, but I probably won't respond, people are okay. Like, great, right. I got it. I didn't expect a response, and so I'm not unhappy. And then when you do respond, when you see a good lead or something, people are way more happy than they would have been. Oh, they don't take it for granted. That is great. <laughs> so this work, Deep Work, was really popular. And what year was that published? 2016. 16. And here you are already with another new book out. And so basically you've lapped me six times. Isn't this your sixth book? Sixth book, yeah. I just had my first book out today on the day of this interview, and you now have lapped me six times, and you are a lot younger than I am. So what do I have to show for myself? Not a lot, I guess. Huh? Well, see, once you start deep working, though, we'll be you back think? here next year. Who you'll knows? be in book four. Yeah. All right. There you go. <laughs> Talk about what led you to digital minimalism, choosing a focused life. So there's your favorite word, focus, yep. in a noisy world. The readers of deep work were actually a big part of the initial push into this topic. So I was out there on the road. I was talking about it. This is a book about the workplace. Deep Work was about the workplace. And readers would come up to me and say, okay, maybe I buy this premise about what's going on in the workplace. But the real issue, I mean, the one that's literally keeping me up at night, is the impact of new technologies in my personal life. Mm-hmm. And there's something interesting. really interesting going on there, but also really different than what's happening in the workplace. In the workplace, we're talking about expectations with bosses. We're talking about email. We're talking about Slack. What was happening to people's personal lives was actually much different. And I had been noticing, because I'd written about these topics for a while, but I'd been noticing around that time, 2016, early 2017, that there'd been a shift in the way that people seemed to be talking about this. Mm. The shift from the self-deprecation, like, oh, I'm on my phone all the time, isn't it crazy, into actual unease, where people were starting to get fed up. 
Hmm. People are actually looking for changes. This is not healthy. This is not sustainable. What's happening in my personal life? This message was so strong. I was receiving it so strongly. I felt like I had no option but to actually leave the world of business and dive into this particular topic. What's happening in our personal lives with technology? And you were able to go out to your fan base and say, who wants to help me with this project, basically? Yeah. Talk about that uh, experiment and what it yielded. Well, so one of the things that became clear when I was working on the book is that if you're going to transition your digital personal life to something more sustainable, small tips, small changes, this wasn't going to get it done. Something more wholesale had to happen. I worked on a process, a 30-day process, that I thought could affect this rapid transformation, but I wanted to kick the tires on it. So I put out a note to my readers just on my email list saying, hey, is anyone willing to come along with me and do a 30-day experiment? You're going to have to step away from all the technology of your personal life. It's not going to be easy. And then Simi reports about it. I thought that maybe 20 or so people would agree because and it's a big ask. And then over 1,600 people ended up signing up. That is like uh, that is a cry for help right there, isn't it? Like, yeah. not only do I want to do this, but I really need you to help me. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said it around your personal life because you make a distinction that part of this, look, there you have the deep work and some of the rules and the consistency around work life, which I get. Everybody has different expectations. If you work at some big law firm. Yeah. And the client wants you. Yeah. Tough luck. Don't be a lawyer in, in this day and age if you don't want to be notified at late in the day, right? Yeah. But for your personal life, that's where you were seeing, having these feelings that came out that were, I think that people understood, like, I'm sort of, not like, maybe I don't, I'm not addicted, maybe I am addicted, but I have a tendency, an urge, something is drawing me back to this device, yes. and, and I can't escape it. Can you just talk a little bit about the two issues especially around social media, that draw you in. Yeah, well, in some sense, the companies went too far, and that's part of what was creating this trend where people were going from self-deprecation to unease, is they got so good at getting you to look back at the phone, because, again, that's directly the activity that generates revenue for the company. You going back to the phone, uh, using it, giving data, and allowing your data to be used to target advertisements at you, that's the business model. They got real serious about this business model around the time they started to think, how are we going to make this IPO success? So Facebook in particular innovated a lot of what's bringing us to the phone. When the IPO was coming up, they were thinking, we have to get the revenue up. To get revenue up, we have to get user engagement minutes up. To get user engagement minutes up, we have to completely re-engineer the experience of social media. And we have to take it away from what is used to be, which is primarily you have a profile, other people maintain a profile, you check in on your friends' profiles, they sometimes check in on yours, and they re-engineered it to this experience where you're getting this steady stream of rewards coming at you through the app, Mm -hmm. like likes. We think like is fundamental to social media. It's not. That's a feature that's much more serving the interest of the companies than it is the users. Photo auto-tagging, the the quick comments that you can leave, the hearts on Instagram, this changed the experience of social media to one where you have constant rewards, social approval indicators about you coming in, uh, which really led to this new relationship people had with their phones, which is this constant companion, I'm always clicking, which is different than it was before. I love the, um, the you said that the tech companies encourage behavioral addiction, intermittent positive reinforcement. That's the hearts, that's the likes, which yeah. you think should just be banned. Like everyone should stop doing that immediately. It's not a feature that was added because it made the user experience better. Those no. were features that were added because it quadrupled user engagement minutes. That's incredible. And the drive for social approval because we are social animals, right? And we do want that. Where is it that you see in the the 
the iteration of where we are today in social media, where you start to see the approval part of that? Well, so the big shift was instead of the static experience where maybe I read what's going on in your life or maybe someone reads about what's going on in my life, they had to figure out how we give indications that people are paying attention to you. And so if I see there's likes, that literally means someone liked something I was doing. So if I tell you, like, here's an envelope, and in this envelope is something that someone was thinking about you, human nature makes it almost impossible not to open that envelope. Whereas if I say, hey, in this envelope, there's something interesting or funny, you're like, oh, that's nice. Maybe I'll get to that. But if I tell you, no, no, someone said something about you. I wrote it down. It's in that envelope. You're going to have to open it. And so the social media platforms figured out pretty quickly, we have to find these indicators of social approval. Mm. We have to make the stream of social approval indicators as rich as possible because that's human psychology 101. It might be nice to see what my friend is up to, but I have to see what people are thinking about me. Oh, my God. That is what got me off of social media right there, by the way. The counts? No, the what people are yeah. like or yeah. are they dislike liking the, or dislike. Yeah. Because so in my case, you know, on Twitter or on, not so much on Facebook, but more like on Twitter, which is yeah. a cesspool. Yeah. I, w- I had to be on for work like you're in journalism, which I think is baloney. I think this is all baloney to the nth degree. Like I know tons of journalists who are like, oh no, you have to be on Twitter. Like, yeah, if you're a producer and you're looking for people to be in stories, yes. But for someone like me, I don't have to be there. And I was really not into the nastiness. Yeah. I was n- really not into, I really didn't like the anti-Semitism, oddly enough. That's Strange. interesting. Yeah, it was crazy. Fun? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't great. I don't have a thick enough skin, I guess, but I really said I need to stop this. So yep. Mark, the executive producer extraordinaire, kind of runs my social accounts and yep. he'll tell me if something I need to respond to or he'll forward something to me that is important. Yes. And he'll say to me, Um, You know, this person's looking for you. They want a speaking engagement. Or I think your uncle's looking for you on Facebook. You know, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but I I am so much happier with Mark being my filter because it just hurt my feelings so much. Yeah. Which, Which, by the way, is the way I think news organizations should run is there should be people who engage or monitor what's going on social media on behalf of the journalists as opposed to this model that the journalists themselves should be constantly engaged in the social media. That also distracts you and it fragments your attention. It makes it very difficult to write the scripts or, or, or think through the story. And so I'm with you. Uh, all right. So now I want to talk about the principles of digital minimalism, starting with one of my favorite things, which is you quantify it and you say clutter is costly. Yeah. And explain that. Right. Well, I mean, if we take a step back, what is minimalism asking you to do? What it's asking you to do essentially is wipe the slate clean of all of this haphazard junk that you've added into your personal digital life for arbitrary reasons. Wipe it clean, get rid of it all, and then carefully rebuild it from scratch. Except for when you rebuild it from scratch, you just put in the big ROI, the big wins, big ROI options, right? Right. Selective, intentional use of technology that now you're choosing very specifically. This is going to help something I really value. This is going to help something I really value. This doesn't, so I'm going to ignore it, right? That's classic minimalism. Now, the question is, why does that work? Because it does mean that you have to miss out on things that could bring you some small value or convenience. Right. Like focusing on just the big wins, you're ignoring the small wins. So why do you end up net-net better off? Well, one of the reasons is this first principle is that the clutter itself has a big negative cost. And so we're used to this in the physical clutter space, that if I'm a hoarder, that so my house is overflowing with all this junk. It's true that if you point to any one thing in my house, I could give you some reason why 
I might need that newspaper from 1985. Right. Whatever, that was a good year. I might want to remember it. But obviously, the overall negative cost of having my house be so overcluttered far outweighs even the sum of all those small pieces of value. Mm. Well, it's the same thing in your digital life. You have all these things on your phone. They're all clamoring for your attention. You have some explanation for each. Here's a reason why I downloaded that, or here's what I could do with this. But the overall negative cost of having your attention constantly be pulled at, constantly being manipulated could far outweigh the sum of all those little benefits they bring you. So the first thing I did after I read the book was I deleted all social media from my phone. And then I'm like, okay, not missing it at all. Okay. And and the other thing that happened, it was weird. I think this was before I read your book, but I was sitting at a bar in New York, totally enjoying a beautiful bourbon. And I'm looking at my phone and I thought to myself, you know, 15 years ago, I'd be sitting at this bar and talking to the person next to me. Yeah. Right. And I put my phone away and I turned to the guy next to me and I'm like, so where are you from? And uh, it was so much more of an interesting experience. And I'm look, I'm a, I'm an extrovert anyway. So I like talking to people. I like face to face conversation. It was so much a richer experience. And I know that sometimes we are when you see everyone else on their phones, you want to go on your phone. But it was so much better to talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the specific examples I give in the book is the waiting in the restaurant or the bar for someone you're going to meet and just being there and how interesting that actually is. And I've had multiple people actually come up and say the same thing that you're saying. Even last night, I was talking to someone, a reader who was telling me that exact story, how much she now enjoys that period at the restaurant before her friends arrive. Because it's actually really interesting. I mean, you know, when you're at a bar, you could talk to the bartender. There's interesting people there just watching what's going on. It's like a drama unfolding. I mean, you're just alone with your thoughts, but also encountering the world. That's what our brain sort of expects to do. Our brain is not evolved for the for rapid, yeah, text on a glowing screen that's 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 rapidly, that's also like emotionally engaging and about you. That's short-circuiting the brain. And what about if you are... If you find yourself really, it's like incapable. Uh, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who are corporate people and they say like, well, look, it's the expectation is that I have to check my phone all the time. And then once I check for work, I'm now then dragged into this other world. How, how can we help those folks? Yeah, you have to try to break those bridges where you can. I mean, one of the things that's very common among almost any digital minimalist tech setup is that their phones are incredibly simplistic. They have very few things on their phone. They would never, for example, even if they had a need for social media, some specific thing for work or this or that, they would never have it on their phone Mm. because they don't want that portal, that always odd constant companion model. Digital minimalists are very old school in the ways that if they need to use Instagram or something like this, it's on their desktop at home and they do it just occasionally, you know. Uh, So they dub down their phones a lot so that you've broken these bridges. So I have to go on there to check if I have an email from my law firm. Cannot easily then change into, and so as long as I'm here, I better see what the latest baseball trade rumors are. And now, okay, now I really, this guy really has it wrong. So I have to really let him know that he's he's completely undervaluing Bryce Harper. And then you go off. Yeah, yeah, now you're down that rabbit hole. Now you're down the rabbit hole. You got to fill in the rabbit holes, basically. And the phone is where most of them live. So once you realize that you have um, that clutter is costly, you say that optimization is important. That is principle number two of digital minimalism. Can you explain that? Right. So what minimalists do is after they make these intentional selections, this is the tech I'm going to use in my personal life. Here's the big win I want to get out of it. They don't stop at the binary question of what. They also ask how and when. And this is where they really start to get the big win. So they want to say, well, how am I going to use this technology? And when am I going to use this technology? And so this is where you get these setups, like I was just saying, where, well, it's not on their phone. Maybe it's just on their desktop. 
and maybe they very severely curate their experience and they have schedules around it. And so like an example I give in the book is that I worked with a lot of visual artists who told me, okay, Instagram passes this test of this is important for something I really value because if you're a visual artist, you need to have a constant stream of creative input. That's the grist, right, into the mill of, of creative output. And Instagram is a great place for that because a lot of artists post images of their work. And so the minimalists who go through this process who are artists to say, okay, so I do need Instagram, when they do the how and the when question, they completely re-engineer their experience with Instagram. And so, for example, they'll often curate who they follow down to maybe, let's say, 10 artists. They'll take it off the phone. They'll put it on the desktop. They'll have a schedule, which is like, this is what I do Sunday morning. I spend 20 minutes to see what's been posted by these artists over the past week. They're getting 99% of the deep value out of the service, and now they're avoiding 99% of the cost. So that's the optimization piece of being a minimalist, and it, it really does help push you in the big win category. What drew you to the Amish? I found that to be rather curious and really illuminating. Well, the Amish highlight uh, the third, I would say, principle about digital minimalism, why it works, which is this notion that intentionality itself can be so valuable that it swaps out the inconveniences of being selective. And so the Amish take this idea and they push it to a far extreme. So they have this very clear intention. We, we misunderstand the Amish often. We think uh, fallaciously that they froze their technology at some point in the 18th century, right? It said, okay, it's never going to be any better. <laughs> We're not going to do anything new. It's, you know, 1795. 18, I was just or... going to say, you know, it's like 1801, done. Yeah, like right. whatever. They really like that year. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine we're going to get any better, right. which is not at all the case. I mean, uh, I learned a lot about the Amish through Kevin Kelly, mm-hmm. who spent a lot of time with the Lancaster Amish when he was younger. And he writes about how you show up at an Amish village and that idea gets blown out of the water right away. He talks about showing up and an Amish boy goes by on rollerblades and there's solar paddles and generators and uh, disposable diapers on the kids. So what's really going on with the Amish? It's not anti-technology. They have this clear intention, which is for them, community, strength of community. Like that's the whole ballgame. And so every new technology that comes along, they evaluate it. Is it going to make our community stronger or is it going to make it weaker? And they'll test it. They, they'll say, okay, here's a smartphone. We'll use it. Cell phones, let's try it. Let's have someone try it out. Cars, let's buy a car. Let's see what happens. I mean, they watch what happens. And if it strengthens the community, they say, great. Uh, if it weakens it, they say, no, go. Right? Mm-hmm. And so this is why you could have a diesel generator or disposable diapers. It doesn't weaken the community. But if you have electricity connected to the grid, well, now we're kind of too connected to the outside world. Mm-hmm. Or a car is really a problem because when they tried cars in the early 20th century, people left. They go do other things. Uh, yeah. They weren't around visiting with neighbors. So they said, okay, no cars. Now, I'm not advocating that we should follow the same value system of the Amish, but the fact that the old Amish community still exists, even though they're surrounded by Western East Coast civilizations, not like they don't know what's going on, emphasizes this broader point, which is there could be so much value in being intentional that it swaps out the inconveniences because they have inconveniences pushed to an extreme mm-hmm. and yet this order still survives in large part because there's such value out of being intentional. So on a much smaller scale, that's why digital minimalists could end up better off is, yeah, it's inconvenient sometimes not to have all these apps, but the value you get out of being so intentional about your technology can be so satisfied that it swaps out all of those minor inconveniences. And the thing that I thought was really cool is as you talk about going on your 30-day digital purge is that you know, obviously, just don't, you're saying, like, don't go cold turkey and then bring it all back. It's really about thinking, what have I missed and what am I going to replace this with? I have always been a physical book book person. 
And even, I mean, I, I try to Kindle for five seconds and and even an iPad, but I always like holding a physical book. And I think the reason I really like it is I feel like I'm immersed in it. And that when there's technology that's underlying it, then I can be distracted quite easily. What is it that people are bringing back into their lives that they hadn't thought about in a while that will help them bridge the gap between what they had and what they will have? Well, analog leisure is a big part of what people rediscover when they do this 30-day declutter. And by the way, I use the term declutter very specifically instead of detox because to me it's this mystery the way that the digital community has appropriated this term detox, it's a, a real perversion of the actual meaning of this term, right? It comes out of the substance abuse community where a detox was you you break the sort of addictive compulsion to use something as the first step towards building a new life that doesn't have this in it anymore. And yet in the digital community, we have this weird notion of a detox where like, okay, here's the idea. We take a break and they go back to what we were doing before, which baffles people who are used to this term from before. And so I use the term declutter because it's not about taking a break. It's about completely changing. So during this 30-day process where you're away from basically all of these technologies before you rebuild your life, analog leisure is one of the big things that people report back to me is that they rediscover things as simple as going to the library and getting a stack of random books. Like, okay, I'm now going to go home and read these, you know, and, and they're random, but I might like some and I might not others, and it just kind of seems interesting, and I have a, a weekend afternoon here. That's something we were all used to, but we've lost. Getting back into hobbies is a big thing for people. And physical hobbies. There was, physical. There was something really interesting yeah. about that to me, that there was something about whether it's a gardening project or some sort of home improvement project, that that was yes. very satisfying. Well, and, and this is something I really discovered working on this book, is that there is a difference between even a skilled digital activity and a skilled physical activity. And a lot of it is the way that our brains have evolved because we're a tool-using species is that what our brain is set up to do and craves is manipulating the physical world and seeing your intention manifested concretely. Like mm. That's what you use your hands and you, you hit the, the stone, right, and you build the arrowhead and you could see that you've built something new. You had an intention and you changed the physical world. We really need that. And until recently, we always had that because almost any activity you did was going to be something in the physical world. You're making something, you're building something, you were repairing something. And so people find great pleasure when they get back to that. They had forgotten how much joy they used to got out of that. And they were unaware of the degree to which they had pushed almost any physical interaction with the world out of their lives and replaced it with just an interaction with a digital stream. When you think about the the minimalism, you also include you, not only YouTube, but streaming media. And I found that interesting because I was like, hmm, wh why is that? Because is that just because of the binging? Yeah, actually, my readers are the ones who pushed that on to me. Huh. So when I did this original experiment, I had a list. Okay, here's what I mean by technologies in your personal life. And I did have streaming media on it. Because I don't know, to me, it was kind of confusing like is it tv or not tv i mean we have it come through our tv and it's sort of i mean is that the same as tv it's kind of the same thing and and i have three young kids we don't watch a lot of tv i mean we don't have a lot of free time so it didn't really occur to me but the two pushbacks i got was you need to add streaming media to it and it was because of the binging people yeah. were using this as a way to not have to actually engage with the world or themselves or their own thoughts and then video games oh that right, wasn't on right, my radar right, right. at all but a lot of young men wrote in and said that has to be on this list. So those are the two things that I learned uh, are having a big effect in people's lives that I didn't even really realize about. If you're not a binger, should you still strip that away? Yeah, you don't have to. I mean, my, my original rules is like if you're someone like me, like my wife and I might watch 
30 minutes of TV a night or something like that mm-hmm. if we have time. I didn't see that as being particularly troublesome. Uh, but people who are younger than me, who had more downtime, let's say, that were filling it more streaming media, they wanted the bad they pulled off. Though I got a clever hack that I would say four or five different readers came up with the same thing, which is they had a rule about streaming media during this period where it wasn't that they couldn't watch it, but the rule was they could only watch it if they're with someone else. Yeah, I, I noticed that, that yeah. there was like, if I buy myself, I mean, sort of fall prey to that urge I'm to keep going. Something. Yeah. But if I'm with someone else, then it's just this is fun. like a social, I'm with someone else for watching a show, it's social. So I, I think that was a good compromise for a lot of people. That's excellent. Um, what about the group of these young, uh, of these younger people who are prone to having more anxiety and that the suicide rate is up. And I'd heard that, but when I just, I don't know why, it just struck me as I read it and the way you put it in context to me, so awful and depressing. And what can we do to actually snap out of that horrible downward spiral? Well, the good news is there is a lot of pushback happening. I mean, essentially what has happened with that young generation, Generation Z, is that the data is starting to get so stark that it's now crossing into the public health crisis territory. And now the signal is beginning stronger as the literature has become more robust, is that we are seeing a sharp rise in anxiety and anxiety-related disorders, as well as the corresponding hospitalizations for self-harm and suicide attempts, which is what tells us this is not a self-reporting effect Mm. among that generation. And it's a hockey stick graph. If you're looking at uh, year board and incidents of these anxiety-anxiety-related disorders and the corresponding hospitalizations, it's like right at this point that it became standard for someone who was young to have a smartphone, it really rises really, really fast. And I mean, think about that, like if you were 15, 16, 17 years old, where you do have a natural anxiety about social intercourse, you have a real fear of missing out. It's like it preys on this almost teenagehood yeah. in such a major way. Yeah. If you're feeling like that and or you feel like you're, you're a parent and you're watching it, what steps do you think that they should be taking? Well, so what I'm hearing is that there's there's a growing unease among the young people themselves. Mm. And so they recognize this. They, they recognize this is a problem and they don't like it. And what you really need in this situation is you don't need a wholesale culture change in the sense that, okay, everyone has to stop using these things. What I'm hearing and what I've heard other people who are really working on this issue closer to me saying is we need positive deviates, which means if we can get two or three families in a given school, that don't let their kids have smartphones, that will break the dam and give the cover needed for lots more people not to do it. And so I think the schools need to get involved. Mm. I think it is a public health issue. Uh, But one of the reasons I bring it up in the book is that it's also a canary in the coal mine for those of us who are older, right? Because this is a controlled experiment. You take the independent variable, which is how much time do you spend looking at a screen as opposed to interacting with the real world, and you push it to an extreme with that generation. Right, because they push it to an extreme that you and I would never get to, where they essentially do all of their socializing in their room on these screens. I know it's ridiculous. Like you see them at a party. Like someone said to me, "Oh, it's like my kid's bar mitzvah. Everybody was on their phone, not yeah. actually doing and anything." They don't go to parties anymore. I mean, this was my yeah. whole uh, teenage years. Was the, the the social navigation of Are we cool enough to go to this party? Right. You know, trying to read the room, which is good training. But it's a great experiment. Like let's push this independent variable to an extreme and see what happens. And there we're seeing extreme uh, negative results. So that's a that's a hit for the rest of us who are maybe not as isolated as a Gen Z teenager, but it might explain this sort of background hub of anxiety that so many people feel is that we're just getting a watered down effect of this thing that we're seeing when we look at the group that's pushing it to an extreme. The key issue, you write, is that using social media tends to take people away from the real world socializing that's massively more valuable. So this is the bar situation. Yeah. 
What is it that face-to-face communication delivers? Well, our brain is primarily a social processing computer, and there's a ton of neuronal hardware that is optimized for actually reading the rich stream of cues that you see if you're actually in a physical analog conversation. So it's looking at small changes in facial structure. It's looking at body language. There's an effect called limbic consonance, where I'm actually going to start to try to match some of the rhythms and intonations of your voice so that there's more of a, of a connection there. These are huge parts of the brain that are working on how do I sit here with another person and navigate this back and forth interaction. I'm doing something called mentalizing, which means, okay, now I'm also simulating your brain in my brain so that I can essentially run experiments in my brain as to how will you react if I say this or that, right? That's also going on when you're interacting with someone face-to-face. So we have all of this hardware that's optimized over evolution to handle something that's incredibly complicated, which is human interaction. Almost none of that hardware gets used when the interaction is digital and on a screen. If it's just text-based or even worse, just a icon like a like button and you see a, a count go up from six or seven or I say happy birthday mm-hmm. on your Facebook wall, none of that uses any of that machinery. And so you might be telling yourself, oh, I'm so social. I said happy birthday to 23 people this week. But as far as your brain is concerned, you haven't talked to anyone. How does that play out in a workplace where there are so many remote employees? I mean, you remember when Marissa Mayer got like, her ass kicked because she's like, no more working remote. Maybe she was onto something where people did need to be in the same physical space, not every single day, but more often than not, to be more collaborative. To be more collaborative, but also to avoid real large problems that were coming out of misunderstandings. Because when you're just, let's say, an email or Slack-based communication, you're not getting any of these social cues, voice intonation, body language. And so we have a really hard time try to extrapolate that from text. And so what happens is when you're you're almost all doing text-based communication is there's all these misunderstandings. Mm. Like, well, Jill, I think is mad at me or, you know, right? Because you don't know, you're, you're, you don't know how to put tone into just text. And so people get resentments, people get really upset. There's sort of false divisions that are happening. Things get heated. And this is all because we're not made, we're social creatures that don't know how to socialize through ASCII characters. We have to have the analog component. And so there is a lot of pushback on remote working. And I think this is part of it. Sherry Turkle, the MIT professor you you mentioned in the book, uh, she's reported that even in non-remote workplaces, this is a problem with young employees because they're uncomfortable because it's very hard, right? It's very hard to do interaction, which is why we're supposed to spend our whole adolescence practicing it. We're supposed to be, you know, in the party and try to read the room and having these conversations. If you don't practice, you're not very good at it because it's incredibly hard what we do. What seems easy to us is actually really, really hard. And so if you spent your whole teenage years avoiding that, communicating through ASCII instead of analog, even if you're in the office, they're very uncomfortable talking to their boss face-to-face. I'm hoping that... Your book and more of the research that comes out is really going to prompt people to have these conversations. Although there was only one thing that I really had, I had a pain in my belly when you said it, which is, you know, I walk my dogs a ton, so I'm out and I walk and it's great. But I think you don't approve of the fact that I listen to podcasts while I do that. Well, I'm not, I'm not anti-podcast, so you, you could definitely listen to podcasts, but the key is to have sometimes when you're not. I know. That's what I'm going to do more. Solitude. Yes, Time yes, alone yes. with your own thoughts. You don't have to always be alone with your own thoughts because then you're lonely. Bit Franklin wrote about this and went back and found it in his uh, journals, right? And he talked about solitude is crucial, but if you do too much of it, you're going to be very unhappy. So you, you, you can't do no solitude. If you're never alone with your own thoughts, it's problematic. On the other hand, if you're always alone with your own thoughts, like in solitary confinement, 
that's not so great either. So so I, I give you dispensation. Some to podcast. To, to podcast. But I can cut down a little bit. I yeah. think that's okay. Okay. Cal Newport, before you leave, when we started, I said your best financial or career decision, you said was actually going to grad school, going into academia. What was your worst? Oh, oh probably the amount of student loads I took out as an undergraduate. Mm. I didn't really think much about it. No, why would you? Yeah. Yeah. Now, fortunately, this worked out okay. <laughs> this book writing thing, I was able to, I was able to pay those back. But, but yeah. I mean, the, it was so casual. I mean, it still is now, but it was so casual back then. I know. Like, yeah, here's some money. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Right. And and anyone could get it, and yeah. any kid could get it. Now, any parent can get it. Yeah. Do you know the fastest growing segment of people who borrow for education are those over the age of sixty? Interested. Does that blow your mind or what? I mean, the numbers aren't as big. It's just that the pace is insane. There's so much money to be made there if you're the the load givers. Yeah. yeah. And also like there's so much, so many like broken hearts and terrible stories of people over 60 who are like, yeah, I wish I could retire. Yeah. Can't. Sorry. Yeah. All right, Cal, I don't want to bring you down. Yeah. Now I'm sad. <laughs> no, don't be sad. Um, I love your books. I think that you are fantastic. It's a breath of fresh air. And uh, for, for those of us who are feeling the pain of that pull, it is a perfect antidote. So thank you so much for coming on the program. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much to Cal Newport. I hope this really is helpful for you. It was incredibly helpful for me. Remember, we drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. And uh, in between those days, just hop onto the website, jillonmoney.com, and you can buy my new book. It's called The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. See you next week.